after the life and work of Charles Darwin, any thoughts we may have about God can hardly remain the same. Such at least, at least is the observation of Professor John Hawke of Georgetown University, and it's a view shared by many. As Hawke notes, evolutionary science has changed our understanding of the world dramatically. And so any sense we may have of a God who creates and cares for the, this world must take into account what Darwin and his followers have told us about it. Although evolutionary science has significantly changed our view of the world and of ourselves, I'm not persuaded that our thoughts about God need to undergo a radical revision. Of course, it depends on the particular thoughts about God to which one is referring. As long as we think of God, Hart writes, only in terms of order or design, then the atheism of many evolutionists will seem appropriate. Rather than accept the conclusions of the new atheism associated with thinkers such as Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett, who connect atheism with neo-Darwinian materialism, rather than accept that view, Hart and others urge a new theism consistent with the evolving universe disclosed by contemporary science. A view more radical than Hart's proposal to find a new understanding of God in keeping with the insights of contemporary science is that of Steven Pinker. A few years ago, Pinker published an essay, Science is Not Your Enemy, addressed to scholars in the humanities, which he incorporated in his book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined. What is of special interest for us are his remarks about science and religion. Whereas Pinker thinks that humanists need not fear science, certainly those thinkers committed to broadly religious views of the world do have much to worry about if Pinker is right. As he says, the moral worldview of any scientifically literate person, one who is not blinkered by fundamentalism, requires a radical break from religious conceptions of meaning and value. He offers a litany of what we know. This is quotation number two on the screen from Pinker. To begin with, the findings of science entail that the belief systems of all the world's traditional religions and cultures, their theories of the origins of life, humans, and society, are factually mistaken. We know, but our ancestors did not, that humans belong to a single species of African primate that developed agriculture, government, and writing late in his, its history. We know that our species is a tiny twig of a genealogical tree that embraces all living things and that emerged from prebiotic chemicals almost four billion years ago. We know that our intuitions about space, time, matter, and causation are incommensurable with the nature of reality on scales that are very large and very small. 
We know that the laws governing the physical world, including accidents, disease, and other misfortunes, have no goals that pertain to human well-being. There is no such thing as fate, providence, karma, spells, curses, curses, augury, divine retribution, or answered prayers. Though the discrepancy between the laws of probability and the workings of cognition may explain why people believe there are. And we know that we did not always know these things, that the beloved convictions of every time and culture may be decisively falsified, doubtless including some we hold today. If Pinker is correct, and if we are scientifically literate, we must reject as false what traditional religions tell us about the origin of life, and in particular, of human life. It is not difficult to find any number of examples which suggest that one must choose between so-called traditional religious conceptions of God and divine agency on the one hand, and the claims of evolutionary biology, as well as cosmology and the neurosciences on the other hand. Increasingly, the natural sciences, especially biology, are used to support a philosophical conclusion that affirms a kind of totalizing naturalism, according to which the universe and the processes within it need no explanation beyond the categories of the natural sciences. The French philosopher and theologian Jean-Michel Maldemey summarizes well this view, quotation number three. Nature is understood as self-creative. This term indicates that the classical notion of creation has become useless. Nature, and it's appropriate to write the word with a capital N, is self-sufficient not only to produce its own effects, but also to produce itself. The notion of creation disappears in this perspective. Undergirding this rejection of creation is the broad philosophical claim that existence is a brute fact that does not call for any explanation beyond itself. The emergence of new things from other things, or their going out of existence, or other varieties of change need to be explained, but not the mere existence of that which undergoes change. The fundamental argument is that the natural sciences are fully sufficient, at least in principle, to account for all that needs to be accounted for in the universe. But according to this view, Mere existence itself is not among those things that need to be explained. Whether we speak of explanations of the Big Bang itself, such as quantum tunneling from nothing, or some version of a multiverse hypothesis, or of self-organizing principles in biological change, including at times appeals to randomness and chance as ultimate explanations, the, conclu the conclusion that seems inescapable to many is that there is no need to appeal to a creator 
that is to any cause that is outside the natural order. Evolutionary biology, for example, seems to tell us that we can account for the existence, diversity, and order among living things exclusively in terms of natural processes, like genetic mutations and natural selection. As the famous biologist and philosopher Francisco Ayala has remarked, and this is quotation number four on your handout, just the part in red I will read, Ayala writes, it was Darwin's greatest achievement to show that the directive organization of living beings can be explained as the result of a natural process, natural selection, without any need to resort to a creator or other external agent. The role of a creator becomes superfluous. A creator represents at best an intellectual artifact from a less enlightened age. For many, the choice appears stark, either Darwin or God. We can see some of the issues at stake in the relatively sober judgment of a leading biologist of the late 20th century, Ernst Meyer of Harvard, who was clear about what he saw as some of the real difficulties for religion if one takes evolutionary biology seriously. This is quotation five. Darwinism rejects all supernatural phenomena and causation. The theory of evolution by natural selection explains the adaptedness and diversity of the world solely materialistically. Darwinism refutes typology as essentialism. Darwin's theory of natural selection made any invocation of teleology unnecessary. Of all of Darwin's proposals, the one his contemporaries found most difficult to accept was the theory of common descent applied to man. For theologians and philosophers alike, man was a creature above and apart from other living beings. There are several features of evolutionary biology which seem to be of particular relevance to religious belief. The first is the claim of common ancestry the view that all living things are historically and organically interconnected. Commentators describing the publication of a kind of rough draft of the total genetic constitution of the human species, its genome, were quick to point out that since genes look much like, since human genes look much like those of fruit flies, worms, and even plants, we have further confirmation of common descent from the same humble beginnings and that the connections are written in our genes. To affirm a fundamental continuity among living things challenges the notion that distinct species were created by God through special intervention in nature. Common descent challenges as well the theological view that human beings created in the image and likeness of God represent an ontological discontinuity with the rest of nature. Specifically, it would seem that any notion of an immaterial human soul must be rejected 
if one is to accept the truths of contemporary biology. It would seem, please notice that each time I'm saying it would seem. More troublesome, so it seems, is the commitment to natural selection as the mechanism by which biological change has occurred. As a result of chance variations at the genetic level, variations in organisms result in some being better adapted to their environment. And then nature selects those better adapted organisms and eliminates competitors. It is through this process of natural selection that evolutionary biology explains the way in which we can account for the diversity of species in the world. When proposed by Darwin, the radical nature of this claim was immediately obvious, since it had been well established that the emergence of new forms of life was the result of the action of a higher power in or above nature. <clears throat> Although there are debates among evolutionary theorists about the randomness and contingency at the basis of evolution, many biologists argue that at the very least, biology itself does not reveal any fundamental order, purpose, or meaning in nature. For some, the randomness of evolutionary change is conclusive evidence that there is no purpose whatsoever in nature. So the three, three points that I've tried to make here are the commitment to common descent, the, uh, the notion of natural selection as the master mechanism of change, and the denial of teleology, the denial of purpose to nature. Number six, now this is me. I think I've been pretty careful uh, putting in red and italics my words as distinct from quotations from others. Evolution, so number six, evolutionary biology surely challenges the conception that each of the various types of living things is the result of some special divine act, some kind of special creation, <clears throat> or that the order and design in nature must be the result of a type of divine manipulation with little or no reference to natural causes themselves. Too often, God's creative act had been seen as the bestowing of order, and thus, if order and design could be explained by biological process, it would seem that there was no need for a creator. As I've already indicated, the acceptance of natural selection as the master mechanism of biological change and the role of chance mutations at the genetic level seem to exclude the need to appeal to any action by a divine agent or any divine direction providence to natural processes. Contemporary science, especially evolutionary biology, raises important questions as, how, as to how we understand nature and human nature, and in some cases, God as well. Many of these questions that science raises are properly the subject of a philosophy of nature, that more general science of nature that examines the nature of change, time, the unity and identity of individual substances, the nature of life, and how living things differ from the non-living. We might add to this list 
the vexed question of what it means to speak of a species and whether we can distinguish among the meanings of species in biology and philosophy. My focus this evening, however, is on creation and evolution. And as my title indicates, I want to discuss the metaphysics of creation. Since, as you will see, a central thesis I will defend is that creation is a subject not only in theology, but also in metaphysics. And metaphysics is that branch of philosophy that considers the fundamental features of reality, both material and immaterial. I will emphasize the metaphysical understanding of creation, especially as that understanding uh, uh, was developed by Thomas Aquinas. We will have to keep in mind distinctions among the explanatory domains of the contemporary natural sciences, the philosophy of nature, metaphysics, and theology. A great deal of the confusion in discourse today about evolution and creation, and about cosmology and creation for that matter, a great deal of the confusion is the result of the failure to keep these explanatory domains distinct natural sciences, philosophy of nature, metaphysics, theology. Indeed, part of the, a good part of the confusion is the result of the failure to recognize that there are explanatory domains of reality beyond those of the natural sciences. One may wonder why a 13th century European philosopher and theologian should be a source of valuable insights for philosophical reflections on 21st century science. As I will argue, Thomas Aquinas offers the best account of what the act of creation means, and he does so first of all in philosophy, that is by an appeal to reason alone. That he set forth his views almost 800 years ago do not make them any less true. Before describing the traditional metaphysical understanding of creation articulated by Thomas Aquinas, I want to say something more about the contemporary confusion in discourse about evolution, a discourse that can easily become obscured in broader political, social, and philosophical contexts. Terms such as evolution and creation have taken on cultural connotations serve as ideological markers with the result that each has come to, a st to stand for a competing worldview. For some, to embrace evolution is necessarily to affirm an exclusively secular and atheistic view of reality. And evolution is accordingly either welcomed or rejected on such grounds. And too often creation is confused with various forms of creationism that embrace either a literalistic reading of the Bible or think that creation must mean a kind of divine intervention in cosmic history with God's directly creating each individual species of living things. As evolutionary biology, for example, claims to be able to explain order and design without an appeal to an order or designer, 
but exclusively on the basis of natural processes, it appears that there is no longer a role for God to play. The God described by natural theology, either the natural theology of William Paley, who's number seven on your handout, or the natural theology of contemporary intelligent design, that God ought not to be identified with the traditional notion of God as creator. My general point here is that Darwinian evolution may very well call into question Paley's God, a God conceived fundamentally as a designer or master craftsman. But, and this is a point to which I'm going to return shortly, evolutionary biology does not challenge the notion of God as creator as set forth by Thomas Aquinas. The proximate origins of the order and design one observes among living things may very well be explained in terms of biological processes, but such explanations are not a substitute for creation, which is, which is first of all, an explanation of existence rather than of order and design. Now, I don't want to enter into debates here about how properly to understand the various features of Darwin's theory of evolution. Here, I want only to emphasize a crucial phenomenon, the connection between creating and causing order and design in nature, a connection that does not adequately reflect what to create means. When evolutionary biology is seen to challenge the notion of creation, it's a notion of creation that is identified fundamentally with the causing of order and design. We can see the continuing force of an identification of creation with an act of ordering or designing in Stephen Hawking and Leonard Mladenow's book, The Grand Design. In rejecting cosmological arguments about the fine-tuning of the initial conditions of the universe as providing evidence for the existence of a divine designer, notice indeed the whole title, The Grand Design, uh, they write, and this is quotation eight on, your, on the screen, just as Darwin explained how the apparently miraculous design of living forms could appear without intervention by a supreme being, the multiverse concept can explain the fine-tuning of physical law without the need for a benevolent creator who made the universe for our benefit. The grand designer referred to by Hawking and Mladenow is, however, not the creator, at least not the creator that traditional philosophy and theology affirm. Quotation number nine, for me again, <clears throat> the extent to which biologists, when they speak about self-organization, move beyond the domain of biology to make broad claims about self-creation, and that accordingly there is no need to appeal to a source of existence of living things, is the extent to which their claims are broadly metaphysical. An important feature of these philosophical claims, namely that the self-creation and self-sufficiency evident in the natural order eliminate the need to appeal to God, 
These claims involve conceptions of God and creation that even if shared by some believers are really not the same as those found in traditional philosophy and theology. The principal point of my comments in this talk is to clarify what we mean or ought to mean when we refer to the metaphysics of creation, that philosophical account of the cause of existence. If we take Thomas Aquinas' understanding of creation as a guide, <clears throat> or at least as a representation of the classical conception, we can see that the very processes that evolutionary biology explains depend upon God's creative act. The very intelligibility of evolution itself depends upon a source that transcends the processes of nature. If it were not the case that all that is is completely dependent upon God as cause, there would be no evolution at all. God's creative act is the foundation of the reality and the intelligibility of evolutionary change. Furthermore, for Thomas, nature contains intrinsic principles of dynamic activity, an integrity that is not challenged by a robust notion of divine omnipotence, but an integrity which is made possible by God's omnipotence. In particular, we need to recognize that creation in its most fundamental sense is an account of the existence of things, not of changes in and among things. Accordingly, there is no contradiction between creation, so understood, and any conclusion in the natural sciences. The natural sciences have as their domain of explanation the world of changing things, whether the changes so described are biological or cosmological, without beginning or end or temporally finite, they remain processes. Remember my earlier citation of John Hawt, who tells us that after Darwin, we ought no longer to speak of God in terms of an orderer and designer. The claim is that evolutionary biology offers ample evidence of the various natural processes and natural processes alone, which are the source of the order and design that we find in nature. But if we identify God's creative act as essentially being the causing of order and design in nature, and hence view God as a kind of supernatural artisan or craftsman, we can see how evolutionary biology serves as a challenge to a God so conceived. Whereas some thinkers see the rejection of such a view of God as order and designer, as an opportunity to conceive of God in radically new terms, there is also now the opportunity, I would suggest, to revisit the traditional notion of God as creator set forth by thinkers such as Thomas Aquinas. The designer God who has been replaced by natural processes is not the creator Thomas describes. After Darwin, we have the opportunity for a new appreciation of Thomas's analysis of creation. Well, why should we embrace this opportunity to look at Thomas again? Why should we embrace this opportunity 
rather than follow some of the variants of the new theism? Well, the principal reason is that what Thomas Aquinas says on the subject is true. I suppose there's some laughter in the audience somewhere, which I don't hear. One final observation here before we turn to Thomas more directly. One of the difficulties in taking seriously what Thomas has to say about creation and science, or about ethics, natural law, and metaphysics for that matter, is that we face a grand meta-narrative of modernity, according to which the modern world, in particular the modern world of science, has its origins in an intellectual revolution in the 17th century that involved the rejection of Aristotelian science and the philosophical insights associated with it. According to this grand narrative, modern science and the figures of Galileo and Newton, for example, made scientific advances by rejecting the science inherited from antiquity and the Middle Ages. So that if we study Aristotle or Thomas at all, uh, uh, we look, uh, and we look to their thought, especially in, in, on science, we look to that thought as fossils of an extinct species worthy of an archeological interest at best. That's if we accept this grand narrative. Now, it's not my purpose in these lectures to offer a challenge to this narrative of modernity. Here, I want to acknowledge its existence and ask you to put it aside, at least for a little while, to consider Thomas a worthy interlocutor for contemporary issues and not someone whose thought has somehow been made obsolete by the arrival of modernity. For the rest of my comments this evening, I want to begin to describe, and begin is the crucial word here, what Thomas says about creation. It's a theme to which we shall return in each of the following lectures. And in the process, I hope to deepen and broaden our analysis of what Thomas means by God's creative act. First, a quick linguistic point. Each time I use the word creation, I mean the act by which God causes things to be, as distinct from the results of that act. For the results, I will speak of creatures or created effects. Medieval discussions about creation, especially the intelligibility of creatio ex nihilo, of divine agency and of the autonomy of nature, and ultimately the very possibility of the natural sciences discovering real causes in nature, those discussions in the Middle Ages provide a rich source of insights for us today. What Avicenna, Maimonides, and Thomas Aquinas, for example, saw so clearly that creation is an account of the existence of things, not of changes in and among things, allows us to conclude that there is no contradiction between creation so understood and any conclusion in the natural sciences. Number 10, my words again. The key to Thomas's analysis is of creation is the distinction he draws between creation and change, or as he often remarked, creatio non est mutatio. In the Summa Contra Gentiles, he observes, quote, creation is not a change, but the very dependency of the created act of being 
upon the principle from which it is produced. And thus creation is a kind of relation. Creation as a metaphysical and theological notion affirms that all that is in whatever way or ways it is depends upon God as cause. The natural sciences, whether Aristotelian, with which Thomas was primarily concerned, or those of our own day, have as their subject the world of changing things. From the rippling gravitational waves in the universe, to some atop, to subatomic particles, to acorns, to galaxies. Whenever there is a change, there must be something that changes, whether the changes are biological or cosmological. Without beginning or end or temporally finite, they remain processes. Creation, on the other hand, is the radical causing of the whole existence of whatever exists. To cause completely something to exist is not to produce a change in something, is not to work on or with some existing material. If in producing something new, an agent were to use something already existing, the agent would not be the complete cause of the new thing. But such complete causing is precisely what creation is. To create is to cause existence, and all things are totally dependent upon the creator for the very fact that they are. As Thomas remarks in his treatise on separated substances, this is number uh, 11 on the screen, over and above the mode of becoming, by which something comes to be through change or motion. There must be a mode of becoming or origins of, or origin of things without any mutation or motion through the influx of being. The expression ex nihilo or out of nothing helps to capture the kind of causing that creation involves. God does not use anything at all, anything that is other than his own omnipotence in the act of creating. God does not change nothing into something. Rather, anything separated from God as cause would be absolutely nothing at all. Notice in quotation number 11 that Thomas distinguishes the mode of becoming by which something comes to be through change or motion, some types of which we can call human acts of creating, from the more fundamental sense of creating that he identifies as the influx of being. The latter, the influx of being, is the causing of existence as such. That phrase, as such, is an important one as such helps us to recognize the difference between causing something to exist in the ways in which, for example, animals produce offspring, they cause offspring to exist, and the causing of the, between that type of causing and the causing of the complete actuality of whatever is as it is. Furthermore, when Thomas says in quotation number 11, 
that there must be an influx of being that is not a change. He is offering a summary statement of an extensive philosophical argument. In speaking of the need for a cause of existence as such, Thomas is working within a rich Aristotelian understanding of cause and especially of agent or efficient cause. Thomas broadens Aristotle's notion of agent cause to include the cause of being. He thinks that being itself needs a cause because there is an actuality, an act of being that requires an explanation. As I noted briefly at the beginning of my remarks, perhaps the most prevalent philosophical objection to this analysis of the need for a creator starts from the premise that existence is simply a brute fact and thus does not need a cause. But to speak of existence as a brute fact is not to probe deeply enough in what it means for things to be in the most fundamental sense. Quotation number 12 on the text, on the uh, screen. God's creative act is the causing of existence of the very being of all things that are and in whatever way or ways they are. To be created is to be completely dependent upon the creator for all that one is. Such dependence in being is disclosed not in the natural sciences, but in metaphysics. Now, when you hear expressions such as God's creative act is the causing of existence, you might be tempted to think that this is a religious or theological claim. You might think that terms such as God and creator are only religious terms, but this is not the case for Thomas Aquinas, nor for me. My analysis in this talk remains philosophical, not theological. What is crucial to note is that Thomas distinguishes between creation understood philosophically, this is number 13 on your handout, uh, on the screen, uh, the, Thomas distinguishes between creation understood philosophically in the discipline of metaphysics and creation understood theologically. An important feature of this distinction with respect to our understanding of creation is that from a philosophical point of view, time is irrelevant to what it means to be created. The priority of the creator to creature is not a temporal order of before and after. Thus for Thomas, an eternal created universe, that is a universe without a temporal beginning is completely intelligible. Thomas believes that the universe is not eternal, but he finds no reason to think that a created eternal universe is impossible. Thomas would have no difficulty accepting the intelligibility of contemporary cosmological theories, which posit, for example, an eternal series of big bangs or an elaborate multiverse scenario according to which our universe is but one of an infinite number of universes. At least he would not think that these speculations, nor those in evolutionary biology for that matter, 
called into question the fact that whatever kind of universe there is, it still would be a created one. Perhaps more surprising to some is that Thomas thinks that reason alone in the discipline of metaphysics can actually demonstrate that the world is created. This is quotation number 14. In one of the more radical sentences written in the Middle Ages, Thomas claims, quote, not only does faith hold that there's creation, but reason also demonstrates it. <clears throat> this is a claim that sets Thomas apart from his teacher, Albert the Great, and his colleague at the University of Paris, Bonaventure, neither of whom thought such a demonstration possible. In my lecture next week, I will have more to say about Thomas's philosophical claim that creation can be demonstrated. And especially in the third lecture, when we turn to topics with respect to divine providence and transcendence, we will examine in greater detail how Thomas integrates his philosophical understanding of creation with what faith reveals about God as creator. And in the fourth and final lecture, I will discuss the relationship between Thomas's understanding of creation and developments in contemporary cosmology. Modern arguments about order and design, like medieval arguments about motion and unmoved mover, are arguments in natural philosophy and not in metaphysics. To the extent that to create is susceptible to rational examination, it is a topic in metaphysics and not in natural philosophy, and certainly not in the empirical, uh, in the individual empirical sciences. <clears throat> but it's not enough to say that creation is a topic in metaphysics and not in the natural sciences, although it's important to recognize this distinction. For Thomas, creation is not primarily some distant event. Rather, it is the ongoing, complete causing of the existence of all that is. At this very moment, were God not causing all that is to exist, from quantum processes to the color of the sky, to our own thoughts, hopes, and dreams, to all the things taking place on Zoom, huh? were God not to be causing everything that is, there would be nothing at all. Yet, if this is what creation means, this complete causing, there would seem to be no room for any other causes, since God is, in this view, the cause of all that is. There would be no room for any other causes, neither for those required by the natural sciences nor for the free acts of human beings. The reverse would also seem to hold. If there are real causes in nature, if there really is free will as well, then there cannot be a creator who is the omnipotent cause of all that is. So it will see. As I've already indicated, we will return to Thomas's understanding of creation in the following lectures, and in the process, flesh out more of the details of what he says. In next week's lecture, I will examine how Thomas can speak both of God as the complete cause of all that is, and the fact that what is caused has its own proper autonomy, its own proper causal agency, that we do not have to choose between a universe created ex nihilo by God and the self-sufficiency disclosed in natural processes 
such as evolution. Whoever comes to next week's lecture will be the complete cause of his or her coming, and God will be the complete cause as well. To see how this makes sense, come next week. Thank you very much.